I'm just going to do a quick check. Yep. We have a good quorum to get started. We are recording today's session as well. So this will be available uh, for not just this year's fishbowl challenges, but for future cohorts as well. So welcome, Rachel. Like I said, I can't think of anyone else better suited to kick this off with because you've been your entire career on the investor side as well as the entrepreneur side. But most, it's very hard to find people who have been in the for-profit sector as well as the nonprofit sector and the social business side of the house. So um, it's very hard to find people who've been at the intersection of investing, entrepreneurship, and social business, and you check all the boxes. So thank you for spending your Friday morning with us. It's a pleasure, thank you. Wonderful. So for those of you who haven't had a chance to read Rachel's bio, uh, very impressive bio. She's currently an investor at Full Cycle, a private equity fund focused on climate solutions. Uh, prior to this, she is a entrepreneur. She's actually been a serial tech entrepreneur with four exits. So for all of those aspiring entrepreneurs in the audience, uh, definitely tee your questions up. Um, she has deep connections and roots in the nonprofit sector. Uh, because she was one of the founding members of google.org which is google's charitable um, nonprofit arm and has at this point i think given away almost a billion dollars over its existence uh, she was also a board director at brac uh, for those of you not familiar with brac it is considered one of the largest but also one of the best run ngos in the world um, so just a really great well-rounded um, background for someone in the area of social enterprise. So Rachel, taking you all the way back, we'd love to hear the story of your first startup. How did you decide to take the plunge and what was it like? It's interesting. Uh, first of all, it's such a pleasure to be with all of you today. I'm excited to hear your stories and your questions. When I was in college, I thought I had a path that I was pursuing which would be in international relations and government. And then I got very excited in senior year about technology. And on a fluke, I went to an interview with someone who ended up making me an offer to move to the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, join a, a digital firm. And from there, I, hi, Tom. <laughs> You're wearing your Tusker shirts. Hey, I am. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. I was just giving a little bit of background. And uh, I was recruited to join a, a very early stage startup that was pre-PayPal um, in person-to-person -person payments. And uh, I joined. Um, I, I caught the entrepreneurial bug and got very excited and a month later we got acquired by ebay so it is not a typical entrepreneur story at all it was one of those you know chance events where you you get lucky and and that happens sometimes not can't count on it but it happens sometimes um and it was a really interesting experience going from super small you know 10 person startup to being part of a company that was on a massive growth trajectory uh, when I joined, we had, there were 500 people at eBay, and when I left a year later, it was 5,000. So it was pretty fast growth, early days. Um, but it taught me a lot about 
what it means to be at a startup and the importance of small teams and how every person really matters. That's wonderful. You know, the small teams part really resonates, I suspect, for this group because all of our challenges are currently in groups of three to four and um, they're spread out around the world. So also interesting times where everybody's remote, maybe it matters less, uh, but it's a small group of three to four people with very different backgrounds, very different skills, but coming together around a common passion or a common belief. So I'd love to hear from you as you've been part of so many different early stage and founding teams, what are some tips or even stories that you'd like to offer up to the group as they think about forming their teams and getting their sort of initial dynamic and culture as a team established? Well, I've always believed that diversity is a core strength and it, it isn't only a diversity that is apparent, it's also your lived experience and your backgrounds. And it really matters, particularly when you're thinking about global opportunities. Um, and that could be you know, in any field, it could be in technology or consumer goods, whatever it is. But being able to think about who you're serving from a variety of different standpoints is really important. Um, and the more that you are trying to reach a particular segment of the population, the more it's important that that segment is represented at all levels within the company. Um, and, you know, it could be children, it, you know, it could be um, uh, vulnerable groups, it, whatever that um, goal might be, you, you need voices heard that represent that group. Um, and so I've always believed that. And when I went on to found companies later, um, I definitely built diverse teams. And, you know, even my most recent startup, it was an all-female founding team, and 65% people of color, um, even though women represented the majority of the executive management, um, and you know we were primarily women-funded as well, um, which was hard to do. Uh, it, was, it was also something where we wanted to make sure we had a greater diversity of background too. So um, you know, we really looked hard to go beyond just checking boxes for credentials, for example. And as a CEO, I think it's also really important that you hire to fill in the areas where you're not strong. So, you know, I might be capable at a number of things, but I know if I'm honest with myself, what I'm not terribly great at. And so it's also important to make sure that you're filling in the gaps on your team that represent the areas that are important that perhaps you don't have the most strength in. I, I see a lot of mistakes where managers are comfortable with a particular area and then they hire people who look like them, who have similar strengths. And it means then that your blind spots are amplified. So it's really important, not just from a diversity perspective, but also diversity of skills to make sure that you're hiring to, to have the most strength across as many dimensions as possible. That's super Sorry. Oh, don't worry about it. That's super interesting. It's such a great point because I know the whole world today is so focused on diversity, which is amazing, but it's sometimes hard for an early stage founder and entrepreneur to think about what would that look like for me? So the fact that you're bringing up how important it is to connect this eventually also to the product that you're building, 
that's a that's a really great point, and I think that should resonate with a lot of a lot of the group here with us today. Um, the other question that we often get or we see our teams run into is you start a team and there's so much energy, right? Everyone's excited, they're meeting each other, they're getting to know each other, uh, they're coming together around a common passion, and then they start building a product and things get hard, right? <laughs> things get complicated, new hurdles come up, um, and you realize you have to pull together as a team. What, what, what uh, tips have worked for you? What have some of your experiences been on overcoming those challenges and hurdles, almost like that initial, the initial few blocks that a startup encounters. And maybe we'd love to hear what were some of the interesting challenges or hurdles you personally saw in those journeys? Being an entrepreneur is the hardest work you'll ever love. It, there will always be challenges. And what you have to remember is what's your North Star? Why are you doing this? What's the purpose? Why are you passionate about this? And if it's not something that gets you excited at night or on the weekends, or you know, maybe you even wake up in the middle of the night with an idea, if it's not something that fills you with that kind of energy and commitment, then it may not be what you should be working on because it doesn't ever get easy. It gets better. Sometimes you have um, a successful close of a fundraise and then it's like the world has changed. You've got funding, you can make payroll, you can invest in marketing and it's wonderful. But then there's another set of challenges and sometimes those challenges could be personnel or perhaps you are growing more quickly than you were ready for. Tom knows a lot about scaling challenges. Um, it's not that it's only hard work, but there's never a stage that you get over and then suddenly it's not hard anymore. That's just not how it works. And what you wanna do is really be honest with yourself and your team about the vision and why it matters and why you are the ones who are going to make the difference. And once you know that with conviction, well, then you have to do it because it's, it's your calling. It's what you're, you're meant to be doing right now. But if you, if you don't have conviction around the vision and you're just sort of doing entrepreneurship to do entrepreneurship, it will be a much harder journey because you don't have that guiding vision that unites everyone to do the hard work. And sometimes, you know, one of, one of our core values, well, we had a lot of core values, you know, at, at my prior startup that were very much around the team, you know, every, everyone's an owner. Um, but we also believed in doing impossible things every day. And when you're an all woman founding team in tech, in artificial intelligence, everyone is telling you it's not possible. Oh, you won't be able to raise money. Oh, you won't be able to do this. Oh, why would we invest in women? Oh, why are women doing AI? I mean, you wouldn't believe the things I heard. And, and by the way, that was not like a unique experience. <laughs> a lot of women go through that. Um, but if you have conviction and you know why you're doing it and you know that it matters and you know that you're the team to do it, even if you don't have it all solved, even if you don't have all the people you need, that's okay. But if you know that there's something that you bring to this that's special, that is tied to maybe your personal experience or maybe something that you've really cared about for a long time or, or something you've invented, there's a role for you to play 
And when you believe in the importance of what you're doing and you have a vision for why and what you're doing, it gets you through the hard times. And importantly, as a leader, it helps you bring your team together in an honest and transparent way so that you're not trying to avoid or deflect the problems, but you're using the resources that you have and your team, which is your most valuable asset to solve it together. That's fantastic. I'm literally making notes because I think some of these should be on our website, right? I love what you started with when you said, entrepreneurship is the hardest work you'll ever love. And I think that should be, that should be on a t-shirt, right? Every aspiring, <laughs> every aspiring entrepreneur should have that on a t-shirt. Um, and I also loved doing impossible things every day. That's really, that's again, something that I hope a lot of teams will pick up on and sort of use it to get through the hard times. Um, you talked about building values as a team and defining values. How do you do that with your early team? Once you've got, you know, your few early employees or founders together, how have you personally gone about building a common set of values or defining a mission for the company? For many, it's a continual work in progress. You know, there are times when you feel like, oh, okay, we're here. We're, it's locked, it's set, and, and that's perfect. But sometimes it's organic and you need to find yourself. Um, there may be cases where you have a virtual offsite and you get together and you have a strategic planning meeting and you sit down together wherever you might be and you map out your mission and your vision and your core values and then that's it and it's great. But oftentimes you revisit and you tweak it a little bit. Maybe, maybe we kind of got the mission right, but not exactly. And the more you're doing the work, the more you realize, oh, actually, you know what? It's more, it's more this way. And, and so it's okay. You can give yourself permission to either get it locked and loaded and you're ready to go and that's it. But it's also okay if it's not quite perfect because in entrepreneurship, sometimes perfect is the enemy of the good. Like you, you need to execute and, and what distinguishes most successful entrepreneurs from those that aren't is that ideas might be wonderful, but everything comes down to how well you execute. And part of what your core values help you understand is how you come together as people and what you stand for. And so that is a really important endeavor. It's a worthwhile exercise. And sometimes you can nail it in one offsite and sometimes you can't, and that's okay too. But it's important to have the conversation and to remember why you're there and who you are as people. And I like to explain to entrepreneurs, especially first time entrepreneurs, that culture in an organization, you can think of it as concentric circles. That inner circle, it's, it's like the founders, right? And sometimes there's this implicit, this is who we are because this is who we, we brought together as founders. You know, we're people who are team oriented or, you know, we take big risks or whatever that might be. And in that inner circle, it's fine. Maybe you don't articulate it very explicitly, but you all know. However, as you grow, each subsequent circle, that outer ring, needs more and more translation and communication about who you are as a culture. Because if you don't have intentionality around that, then it becomes wide open for interpretation. And if core values isn't something that you talk about, if your mission isn't something that you're really focused on, then as you expand and more and more people come in who maybe aren't as connected to that inner circle or who aren't part of that early team, there can be a lot of challenges in cohesion 
how you work together, the overall cultural dynamic, and what you believed you were in those early days could very quickly change the bigger you get. I, I really, this really resonates with me because I'm thinking back to my early days when I started my career over 20 years ago. And as a young person entering the corporate world, you're so focused on execution, right? You're waiting for your manager or somebody else to tell you what the big goal is, and then you're ready to go execute. And I think it was only later in my career, and I'd go to these offsites like you described, or these leadership meetings, and they'd block out large, you know, uh, time slots to talk about culture or mission. And I'd be like, why are we spending time on all this soft stuff, right? It always felt like this was the fuzzy stuff. And early in my career, it was hard to understand. And it was interesting because as we ourselves grow as leaders, you start to realize that as you're building teams, that it's the soft stuff that really build, brings the team together. Everyone you're hiring is super smart. Everyone you're hiring is super driven. They will achieve their goals as long as that they, as long as they're all working together as a team and i think it was probably only a good 10 years into my career that i started to realize how important those leadership offsites were where you're talking about culture and values and mission um, so i'm glad that our younger entrepreneurs in this group are getting to hear this very early in their journey and hopefully uh, they'll be able to uh, block time right now. I know right now they have a deadline looming in three weeks. They're gonna send in their initial pitches. So they are probably very much in the trenches right now, but hopefully all of you can take a few minutes to take a step back and think about your values as a team and your culture as a team. Um, so your vision is your reason for being, and it's your unifying principle. And the clearer that is, the more people can return to it in difficult times and remind yourselves, okay, why are we here? I know this is hard. We've got to make tough choices. Why are we here again? And when you have that well-established early on, then that foundation isn't open for debate. It's, it's how do you build on that foundation. But when you don't have that established, it can get rocky. Yeah, that's great. You know, I'd love to also hear, now switching your perspective a little bit, moving now, you're sitting to the, on the other side of the table as an investor now. Uh, what do you think some of the top challenges that young entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs are experiencing today? And here I'd also love your feedback and your insight as someone in the social business space. As you look at, in your case, climate solutions, a lot of our teams are working on, you know, education, healthcare, but issues that are really getting magnified on a daily basis. We clearly as, um, as a leadership community around the world, we clearly haven't done enough and we're playing catch up in a lot of these areas. What are some of the challenges you're seeing as an investor in this space? And what do you see social enterprises either doing well or just the, the common challenges that people are running into? So being an entrepreneur is difficult, but when you're a social entrepreneur, when you're trying to build a social enterprise, you're willingly taking on the additional challenge of, a, of trying to tackle seemingly intractable problems. So give yourself permission to sometimes feel like it's too much. It could be overwhelming. That's okay because we chose the path. We chose the path of doing the hard work of not just creating a cool app, but instead creating something of meaning and building something that can have a positive impact. And that's sort of like 
a, a double responsibility. It's, it's whatever technology or solution that you would have to do anyway, combined with a very thoughtful theory of change that gives you a sense for how you will achieve what can be quite difficult in terms of impact. So you're going to have a different level of stress and challenge that is rooted in the nature of the challenge itself. So if you're trying to address climate change, for example, maybe you're looking at climate justice, you're going to be dealing with issues of justice and you're going to be dealing with the issue of climate change, both of which are extremely complex, interrelated, multifaceted, and, and in the span of a human lifetime, quite daunting to, to try and accomplish. So it's okay, like just recognize that that's the path you've chosen and it's going to be hard, but it will be the most fulfilling work you've ever done. And it will also be something where you can't do it alone and partnership can really help. And I don't really wanna criticize like what, aren't, what are social enterprises not doing well? Because to be honest with you, they're, they're just taking on so much that I, I really just wanna be supportive of the work. <laughs> I don't really have a critique so much for the social enterprises. I think, you know, sometimes a lot of women entrepreneurs get criticized that they don't think big enough and they're not going after big markets. And I'm here to tell you that's actually not true. Um, most women are trying to tackle the hardest problems, but they're going to investors who are very narrow-minded. And because they don't understand what you're trying to do, they put you in a box that is easy for them to dismiss. So if you hear something that doesn't resonate with the truth, what you know, let it slide. It doesn't matter. And I heard, I can't tell you <laughs> how many times as an entrepreneur, as a woman and entrepreneur, as a woman CEO, I heard the most ridiculous things from investors. And it's really great to have thick skin and to know when that advice is worth the price you paid for it, which is free. So often it's not. And don't let people discourage you, especially when you have a big vision and a small team, it's very easy to be an outsider and to criticize from the armchair of, of the outside perspective. And I think if you're the one who is close to the problem and you have a unique vision for how to address it, try and find the people who share that passion and who have skills or resources that can bring a novel approach and can complement what you're trying to do. So look for your allies and dismiss the critics. Sometimes it's good feedback, but I will tell you 75% of the advice I got, it wasn't worth it. it. It was not valuable. So your challenge will be, and it's a hard challenge. It will be, how do you filter through all the feedback that you get and find the gems you know you're hunting for treasure like who really knows what they're talking about who gets it and then if they give you hard, hard advice but it's valuable then that's priceless but if it's if it's a, a way to dismiss you to undermine you to make you feel like you're not good enough it's their problem it's a reflection of them it's not you and yeah. so as an investor i see a lot of entrepreneurs I think the number one challenge 
that I see is that there's still not enough diversity at the top. Founding teams, you know, especially where I am, I'm in California. So many founding teams, they look like they're cookie cutter. You know, it's, I call it the white men in hoodie phenomenon. And, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily have a unique perspective on the problem, especially when we're talking about something like climate change. Climate change is one of those areas where women are not only on the forefront, women are the ones who have been closest to the issue all along. There's so many cases where the impacts of climate change disproportionately affect women and children, but especially women. And when you look at who is affected by an issue, that, that group needs to be represented in the solution. And if that's something that you're doing and people don't feel comfortable because it doesn't look like what they're comfortable with, it doesn't look like what they're used to, who cares? That's their problem. It's, it's really yours. It's your vision and it's your team. And, and I, I just want to encourage people that entrepreneurs do not look at certain type. They don't come from a certain background. That's the myth. And that myth, it's not helpful. And then more importantly, it's not true. Yeah, this brings us all the back, all the way back to that very first point you made about diversity. But I think you also have this more subtle point in there about being thick-skinned, being thick-skinned because you're trying to start a business that a lot of people you pitch to won't believe in necessarily. You'll believe in it. Your founding team will believe in it. But a lot of people you pitch to may not necessarily believe in it. Uh, but it goes back to having a team that is centered around core values that will hopefully drive you through those you know, negative uh, or dis um, uh, less encouraging messages that you hear. So I would also just say, it's not just that they don't believe you. It's that they're privileged to choose not to understand you. They choose not to. Yeah. A lot of the time. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I come from a long history where I've seen woman after woman entrepreneur after woman entrepreneur pitch a VC on a business that's serving women. And then a guy gets funded 10 X what she asked for. She doesn't get funding, but he does for something that's serving women. And, and so it, it's something I've seen as a chronic problem. And so when, when you don't get the kind of reception that you deserve from investors, don't personalize it. Sometimes they choose not to understand because it's more convenient for them or it's more profitable for them to not understand. It's super inspiring. Uh, Rachel, just for my last question, a little bit more tactically maybe, because I know we this year we received a large number of entries from students interested in climate change and environmental protection. So I'd just love to hear from you. What are some trends that you're seeing from where you sit as an investor? What are some trends that you're monitoring for in the climate solution space? And this is specifically for those teams that are working on climate solutions. First of all, this is an excellent time to be working on climate change. First of all, because we need you. <laughs> the earth needs you, we need you. So thank you. Thank you for doing the hard work. Um, but the other reason it's an exciting time to be working on it is because we are seeing momentum. We're seeing uh, government-led mandates. We're seeing some policy changes, perhaps not in certain countries, but in others. Um, we're also seeing in a number of countries, France is one in particular, 
where the economic stimulus packages are tied to building green infrastructure and building solutions that can really make a difference. So I firmly believe that decarbonizing the economy is the greatest investment opportunity of our lifetime. And it's a moment in time. And the action we take now has compounded positive effect. But the longer you wait, that impact is diminished because everything, well, you know, we have, we have in the case of climate change, it's because of the positive feedback loops, it's all about early action and we're already late. So thank you for doing the work. And what I would say is personally very exciting to me is that a lot of solutions are now combining physical solutions like infrastructure with technology solutions. So the way in which machine learning can enable better predictions for performance or the way that IoT and sensors provide real-time data for monitoring. <clears throat> so you get better data. There's also a lot more funding now than there used to be in this arena. Is that too loud? Can you hear me okay? Don't worry, we hear something in the background, but we hear you fine right over it. So you can keep going. And I would say that um, what excites me a lot is the way in which entrepreneurs have been very creative about taking the data that they have combined with machine learning optimization and building marketplaces where they're addressing some of the frictions that have existed that really didn't need to be the case. Um, one example is a company that is trying to proliferate solar panels for commercial and residential projects. And as we say in investment world, yields on solar are not awesome, but they're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a game changer because the more you have solar, the more you're less reliant on a dirty grid. And what they're doing is they're using machine learning to help developers of these projects bid on projects based on the specifics of, you know, like an RFP, a request for proposal. And so there's buyers of projects, there are developers of projects, and the specs are listed, the bids are done, everything's instantaneous. And then you can have a project that's a third of the cost of what it would have been normally without that transparency. But what that's really doing is also creating a lot of velocity. And now the numbers are looking really good because as an investor, you're going from, you know, say 10 projects a year to a thousand projects a year. Um, and so that's the kind of amplification that we're looking for. Like what are the unnecessary barriers and friction that are preventing a solution from being able to be adopted more broadly or being affordable? Or maybe it's an issue of quality and reliability. Whatever it is, you know, there are great opportunities now for technology to help enable you. Yeah, and this actually, everything you brought up ties in really well with one of our audience questions. So I'll just prompt the audience. If you have questions, start throwing them into the chat box. Uh, Janki had a question she had put in a little while ago, and it ties in really well with what you talked about now in terms of what you're looking at for as an investor. And I know impact investors talk about this all the time. Her question is, what are your thoughts on generating profit through a social enterprise? And I think this ties right back in and how you think about things as an impact investor. So would love your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And, you know, as background, I served on the board of BRAC for 10 years and 
um, BRAC. They're based out of Bangladesh. And if you don't know them, they're an inspiration to me. I, I really love the work that they do. And they're um, one of the largest providers of microfinance and other financial services um, worldwide. And they have built an incredible model where on an annual basis, they generate what they call excess revenue. They don't call it profit, um, but they call it excess revenue of almost a billion dollars every year. And then they take that money and they invest it in other areas, education, agriculture, um, girls, uh, they have these girls, what do they call it? Um, they're like girls camps to help women, young women become leaders and confident in their communities. Um, they also have programs, uh, they have one of the largest programs for hygiene and sanitation called the WASH program. Um, and so they take this revenue and then they apply it to areas that may not necessarily inherently be revenue generating. And so it's sort of a cross subsidy model. And they've perfected the art of that. Um, it's really quite amazing how they've done that. So I see a lot of creative business model opportunities um, for social enterprise. <clears throat> Sometimes the business itself generates sufficient revenue to cover your costs with surplus based on the core product or service offering. And then that's, that's amazing. Sometimes it doesn't. And then you have to be creative and think about how else might you generate revenue. And there is no one right answer, by the way. Like there's so much variety in social enterprise and that's, that's also what makes it so interesting. Um, but you know, when you have a business that can generate sufficient revenue on its own for the product or service offering that you're developing, what you really want to think about is um, how you're pricing it in a way that can ensure that the people you're trying to serve have access to it. You also want to think about other ways that you might be able to generate revenue that don't necessarily put the burden on the people that you're trying to serve. Like there could be um, opportunities to partner. There could be um, extensions, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases, there's a freemium model, you know, maybe you have a free model for the people who can't afford it. And then you have a paid model and there might be some other services attached to that or corporate model. Like there's a lot of ways to be creative. And I think sometimes people get caught up in this mentality that there's no room for creativity in the business model. And it's actually the opposite. There's so much room for creativity and getting your product market fit right and getting your, um, you know, the target audience, right, is really important for understanding that. Um, but, but be creative, like there's, there are so many ways that you can do it. And this also, by the way, the questions are flowing in on chat. So clearly you've given people a lot of uh, great food for thought and inspired more questions. So I think the uh, next question up here actually ties in very well with the BRAC story. I personally found BRAC so inspiring. Dr. Abed, the founder, I encourage all our um, team members here today, check out, you know, there are tons of videos online you can watch about BRAC and how much they've accomplished over the years. Uh, but what I thought was very interesting about Dr. Abed's story was that he was in London, he was studying to be a CPA and then I think may have worked there for a little while, but went back to Bangladesh to get into development and really brought business thinking to it. And one of our challenges, Alana has a question where she asks, do most social enterprise employees have corporate experience? And do you think that makes you more or less valuable um, as you dive into social enterprise work? It's interesting because with BRAC, you definitely have a mix of both. So 
um, Dr. Fazli Abed did come from the corporate sector and um, several of the executives, including the current CEO, also came from the corporate sector. Um, however, a lot of the leaders didn't and they came, they worked their way from the ground up and um, started in communities. So um, there's no one right answer. What helps you when you come from the corporate sector is that you know how to speak the language. So if there are reasons why you might want to partner with corporations or maybe there's a business model that mimics something in the corporate world, that firsthand experience can be helpful, but there's no one right answer. Yeah. I'm going to try and get through the questions because we do want to get Rachel out in five minutes, but I couldn't pass on this one because it's related to COVID-19 and what the world is undergoing right now. So uh, Nana asks, um, your thoughts on opportunities in the educational space right now and are there opportunities to generate multiple income streams while also taking care of low-income students, teachers, and parents? And I, I'm sure this question is inspired by the fact that we're all remote learning in some shape or form and learning how to be remote workers, employees, students right now. Uh, so would love to see what you're or hear what you're seeing in the in the space as well. Yeah, and I, I just my my heartfelt sympathies to anyone who's suffering right now and Thank you. If, if this is an area you're trying to tackle, thank you for doing the work. Um, children worldwide are suffering, not just from the effects of the pandemic or the pandemic itself, but from the disproportionate burden that low-income children, their families um, are bearing, not having equal and fair access to education opportunity. And that stems from maybe not being able to afford a computer, not having bandwidth, not having reliable electricity. Um, <clears throat> and also there's a number of social challenges that come with that. Um, neuro neurodiversity is really important. There are a lot of children who are challenged because they're not getting any social interaction. Um, there's a lot of mental health issues. So <clears throat> this area is what I call ripe for innovation. You know, there is a lot of need it's a giant sector. There are so many children who are falling far behind. And I was just reading a report yesterday about how many millions of families who graduated out of poverty are at risk of going back because of the pandemic. And it, it often is the case that when a family has a setback, many times the girls are the ones who pay, pay the highest price. So, in your work, I, I would definitely try to understand what the needs are of the most vulnerable and where and why they're falling behind and try and understand how might we innovate in a way that can help them get greater access to the opportunities. Um, and you know, maybe it's about a device, maybe it's about having bandwidth, but maybe it's something else. Um, one experiment in Los Angeles actually there are a lot of kids in um, low-income communities who have not had sufficient access to um, the virtual classroom and are really struggling. And what Los Angeles Unified School District is trying now is what they're calling the outdoor classroom. And they're looking at how do you use parks as a new classroom where you can have socially distant learning they can provide the bandwidth, they can provide the devices, 
but also you're in nature and getting kids out of the house and into a park and under a tree has had tremendous benefits to their well-being. And it's a creative solution. We don't know how successful it will be yet because it's still pretty early in the process, but turning the idea of a classroom inside out and having the outdoor classroom is something that they're trying in order to try and get to this disparity of learning outcomes. And, you know, so again, I think creativity is really important and also really thinking deeply about what are those needs and the root causes of those needs and where might you be able to help them. Um, I think, I think it's important work. That's really great. And I think, you know, when you talked about the climate, when you talked about pandem the pandemic now, um, the thought that it leaves us all with is the fact that there's so much to do. There are so many meaningful problems to take on. And um, I love the fact that our challenges are taking this on and have people like you to sort of sh show the way a little bit and shed some light on your journey as well. So thank you, Rachel, for spending the morning with us. We didn't get to all the questions, but Charlie and Grace, um, I think on the two questions you asked, we have some follow-ups we could offer. So I'll try and have someone from the team get back to you on those. But thank you, Rachel, for your insights, your experience, and most of all, for the inspiration. I know that the, the students here today are going to take some of this back. And uh, we'd love to bring you back in the future and share some of the great ideas and businesses that come out of the Fishbowl Challenge. It's been a real honor and I wish I could have heard from everyone on, on the video and learn your stories. Good luck with this final stretch for the pitch. Um, I know it's hard work and it probably feels a little bit uncomfortable and maybe stressful. Um, it's good practice because there will never be an occasion where you won't need a pitch deck. So <laughs> take it as a learning opportunity. Um, best of luck and I look forward to seeing what happens. Great. Thank you. Thanks, thank Rachel. You. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll share the recording soon. Bye. Bye.